What would you say your greatest need is right now? What's a thing that when you pray for, it just comes up again and again? It's at the top of the list. The most urgent, the most essential thing that you need. I want us to think about that because we are going to look in this passage uh, about a prayer that Paul gives to the Colossian church. And he has not met this church before. They've not come face to face. He has heard a report about them, and so he has some sense as to what's going on in their context. But but he really prays this, what, what could be a prayer for any Christian. This is what this church needs. We saw last week, uh, or last time, a little bit about what this church was like. They struggled with insecurity. They had this gnawing feeling like there was something missing in their lives. Uh, uh, something that was incomplete. They were surprised when they received the message of Christianity from Epaphras and they were attracted to it. But it was the simplicity that, that seemed to bother them. There were no like rituals that they had to perform like many of the other religions around them. There, were, there was no uh, temple set up with an idol that, that constantly needed to be appeased. There was no list of do's and don'ts that they had to, to do to find satisfaction. You know, it's that simplicity that I think many people who encounter Christianity, true Christianity, are surprised by. Well, maybe they've encountered a Christianity of something that uh, I would say it's probably a little bit off base. And so the expectation is that it's a demanding, that there's something that, that must be done beforehand. But really, Paul is trying to stress here the basics of the Christian, there, the message. There is no prerequisites. There's nothing that you do to clean yourself up to make yourself worthy. There's nothing that, that is required. The gospel is for all. It's the message of God's grace, God's acceptance, his blessing, not on terms of things that we need to qualify ourselves for, but but according to what he has done through Christ. And so, as we saw at the beginning of this passage, Paul begins in, in this letter to stress that in Christ alone will you find completeness. In Christ alone will you find fullness. And now he goes on praying for the Colossians. What their greatest need is. What is at the top. What is essential for them to to thrive. And it may be surprising. Though generic, though I think in such a way that could be applied to any church, even our own, I would wager it's probably not what we pray for ourselves. So why the disconnect? What's behind it? Well, let's come to this passage, but as we do, let's pray for God to bless us. Will you join me? Lord, we do um, ask you now for your word. The word that we just heard, um, not to just stay in the air, not to just even stay in our ears or even in our minds, but to work its way down into our heart and through our lives. Make us new people. Speak, Lord, 
and bring new creation even into us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I have to confess that uh, most of the time that I give supplications, meaning I ask God for things, I'm looking for practical things. I want stuff that helps me in the real world, stuff that's pragmatic and useful for the struggles that I'm facing. Now, Paul's not aloof. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't pretend or, or is not apathetic to the fact that people are struggling, that there are ordinary needs out there. But what we see in this passage is that what must come first is an understanding of what Christ has accomplished. The redemption bought by Christ, that needs to redefine our needs in such a way that we change what we pray for. Redefining our needs that reflects who we now are in Christ. Part of the Colossians problem, part of I think every Christian sense then its problem is that we often think too little of what Christ has done in us. When the Colossians became Christians, it didn't just change their religious affiliation so that when they sign all the forms, they now check Christian instead of pagan. No, it wasn't even just that they've gotten their, their slate clean so they can walk around without guilt. No, the, the Christian message is beginning to change their entire lives, everything about them. Not just the big things that that are obvious, but every detail of their lives begin to be transformed. It's the difference between light and dark, old and new, day and night. And that's the type of imagery he begins to use in verses 11 and 12 as he he really gets into in this passage about what this huge change and transformation has really done when Christ has come into your life. And it's really only until we grasp that that we can understand the prayer requests that Paul gives. So let's do this in reverse. Let's start at the end. Let's look at verses 12 and 13 about who he says they are now before we get to the requests he makes. He tells them in verse 12, God has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I mean, that is that's powerful Dramatic language. And and Paul's imagery bursting forth here is more than just trying to to say things in a colorful manner. What he's really doing is hitting on some buzzwords. Words that if you're familiar with scripture, you know where, where they belong. They are images from the Exodus. Kids, you know the Exodus story, right? That's the story of God's people uh, when they're in Egypt, under Pharaoh, they're, uh, they're not having a good time in Egypt, right? God's people are suffering. They're enslaved and constantly oppressed by Pharaoh, telling them to work harder. They had no freedom, they had no relief, and they're helpless. 
the Exodus story is not the story of Moses destroying the enemies. It's not the story of this weak people rising up out of their own strength and overthrowing their their masters and finding freedom. It's the story of God. God having compassion on them. God, out of his own grace, looking at this people and rescuing them, delivering them out of slavery, rescuing them from, from Egypt and from Pharaoh's power. It's God who breaks Pharaoh's grip. It's God who carves a path through the Red Sea. And what, what often gets uh, overlooked is that God just doesn't take them out of slavery and, and into some worse situation or another bad situation. He doesn't even take them in, out of slavery into a neutral territory. He delivers them from the kingdom of Pharaoh into the promised land. There's direction. He's rescuing them not just from something, but for something. This new life. And that's all the words that Paul has in this passage that should be echoing throughout. Words like inheritance and delivered and oppressive domain and transferred and redemption. They're all words from Exodus. They're all trying to to help us ignite our imaginations so that we right now as Christians can see ourselves in that story. That story should be the story of our lives, the template that we work through, that we understand what Christ has done. But to really connect the dots between Exodus and the gospel, we have to understand a little bit more about who Pharaoh is here. Because Pharaoh isn't out there as some oppressive enemy. Pharaoh is not the, the people that you face that give you a hard time or some you know, bad thing in the world, whatever political party you don't like. That's not Pharaoh. Pharaoh is inside of you. Pharaoh is your sin. Pharaoh in the sin in the Bible is not just the things that we do bad. You know, sin is pictured; it's personified. Sin is a power, a slave master. That's not a natural way to think about it. I know. I mean, we think about sin, and, and that oftentimes, especially in the culture around us, but even in our own impulses, say, "Well, sin is is like freedom, right?" <laughs> Sin is the good things. It's the fun things. You know, maybe it's God or God's law that's the slave driver. Sin is the party master, not the slave master. It's not natural when we think about it. but, But you can really only understand this metaphor of sin as a slave master once you have been freed. I remember a few years ago, we had some undergraduates over our house uh, for a party, and it was uh, sort of around this time of year when things had been you know, quite stressful on campus. And we had a, a party, and this uh, student fell asleep. And uh, I wasn't offended. Uh, <laughs> and she said, it wasn't the party. She said, 
I didn't realize until now the pressure I was under is imperceptible. In one sense, it would seem like I was going from good thing to good thing. Classes that were exciting. Things that were, were interesting. Opportunities that were amazing. But there was this low level pressure that was constantly there. Weighing, wearing down. until And she only gets it until she gets out of it. And her body just gives up. This is what happens when we understand the redemption we have in Christ, we realize that all those things we were chasing after, the things, the desires that felt good, the things that seemed to call for us, they were actually acting as slave drivers, demanding my desire for control, my desire for power, for security, for pleasure. All seemed like they were going to give me what I wanted, but they kept asking more and more and more from me. And they never gave what I desired. I kept chasing pleasure, but it never satisfied where I felt like, okay, I've reached it. I never get enough control because all the time I try to control everything about my circumstances. There's always that thing out there that I can't control that's the thing that drives me nuts. I try to find comfort, but I can never find rest we realize that those things that put demands on us really are our heart crying out to be God. And it's that very sin in us that is like Pharaoh demanding. Pharaoh demanding of the, of the Israelites more bricks with less straw. Perform more. Work harder. But I'll never give you enough resources where you will feel satisfied. Now, this is what Paul's message is to this Colossian church who is struggling to look everywhere else but Christ. Paul saying, no, you're missing it. You have the thing that will satisfy you. Because the point is that when God rescues you, he doesn't just take you out of the slavery. He puts you into a new kingdom. You're not autonomous. Christianity doesn't offer freedom towards autonomy, but offers a different kind of master. One that doesn't put yokes upon us that burden us, but takes our yoke, as Jesus said, upon himself, so that we might have rest for our souls. One that will satisfy us to the core. And this theme will come up again and again in this letter that Paul wants to stress. This transfer has happened now. The transfer into the kingdom of light is not just for heaven. It is something that has begun now. This is the age where God has started his new creation. It's the age where he begins to make all things new. It's the age of fullness. You know, Paul wants to communicate fullness, that he uses the word like 20 times in this letter. I mean, it's all over the place. Even in our passage, it's there in verse 9 and verse 10, in verse 19, a little bit later in chapter 2, verse 2. 
full. You have to be filled with the knowledge of, of God, fully pleasing him. And Christ is all the fullness of God. He's stressing this idea that you can find fulfillment now. Christ. Christ has come. The transfer from the kingdom of darkness is not just something we look forward to. It's something that has happened. And if that's really true, well, then we really need to think about our needs in a whole different way. Because it means that we're not in Egypt. It means that we live in a new place. That there is a new life blooming inside of us. So what is our real need here? Let's look at it. Let's go back to the top. What are the two things that Paul identifies as our needs? The first one is in verse 9. He prays that they may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That they may be filled with God's will, to know God's will. And you may be thinking, yes, that's exactly what I need. I need to know the plan. I need need to have God's will so that I can start making decisions with full confidence. That's the right path. That's the wrong path. I mean, think about how that would change our lives if we just knew God's plan, right? I mean, I wouldn't be anxious about anything anymore. I could be freed up to say, look, here's the real easy decision. I'm going to turn right instead of left. And my personal God GPS guiding me down every single path. And the beauty of that is I won't have any more responsibility. The pressure's not on me. If it goes poorly, if this relationship goes bad, or if that job interview turns out poorly, it's God's fault. It's not mine. I followed his plan. You know, that mentality is the mentality of somebody living in Egypt. The desire to know God's plan is the the desire of somebody who, who still needs to establish who they are on their own, who fears making wrong decisions, choosing the wrong path. But that's not who you are. God brought you out of that into a new kingdom. You don't need to fear taking wrong paths. Yes, you're going to make dumb decisions in life. Welcome to the club. But the gospel tells us that even in our dumb decisions, even in our mistakes, we cannot get away from God's blessing. There are no more curses for the people of God. So we can be freed now to seek after God in a, in a healthy way, not needing to know the script, but walking in maturity. What is Paul really asking for here? Verse 9, the will he's talking about isn't the plan so that we can work the system. It's knowing his will, knowing what he loves and what he dislikes, knowing him. 
make no mistake, there involves knowing here. Verse 9, there's three words uh, that stress this idea of of knowing or or the life of the mind. Knowledge, wisdom, understanding. We need to learn about God. That's what we call theology. Theology is learning about God. Every Christian needs theology. There's no Christian that can avoid it. Now, we stress it here in this church. I mean, you've seen it probably hit over the head with it. Now, that doesn't mean that we need to fill our heads with information. It doesn't mean that we uh, need to know a lot about things that relate to God. But we need to know God. We need to know him. It may be that you you don't like the particular way theology is communicated in your experience where it's filled with debates or or controversies or or, uh, abstract philosophy. But make no mistake, if we don't pursue knowing God, we run the risk of worshiping someone else. A church that doesn't stress theology runs the risk of not knowing God at all. But Paul shows the proper result of good theology. It isn't just having the right facts. It's not being smarter than other people. It really doesn't have to do with with knowing more than other people. What's the proper result of theology? He says in verse 10, a transformed life. Know God's will so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Walk is is Bible shorthand for behavior. Know the Lord's will so that you may do, so that you may have a transformed behavior. What does it mean to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? Make sure you get that right. It's not walk in a manner that makes us worthy. If you think you can walk in a manner that will make you worthy, you are sadly mistaken. You'll continue to to try to find that elusive thing that will finally make you worthy of God's approval. The whole point of the gospel is that you have found that in Christ. You have been made acceptable. And so to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel is to be in response to what he's already done. He's secured this inheritance for you. Now, walk in light of it. And he doesn't even leave it up to us to guess what he means by a worthy manner. He explains it right here in the next line. What does it mean to walk in a worthy manner? It means in a manner fully pleasing to him. To walk in a manner that's worthy is to love God and to seek to please him. To know his will so well that you can anticipate what he wants. That you can have it it in your pores so much that you know that, yes, this is going to please him. You know this if you've ever fallen in love. When I started first dating my wife, I, I, I would just, you know, try to find out little details small little bits of information. 
I wasn't trying to use the information to get her approval, but so that I could give her the ice cream she likes or, or a small gift that would, would make her happy. The point in that was so that I, I could actually do something that could please her. That's the kind of knowledge that we need. We know God's will in order to walk in a way that pleases him. And there's this great reinforcing principle, if you you can see how he articulates it here. The more that we know God, the more that we will walk in a way that that honors him, that, that pleases him. And what is the result of that? so that we may know him even more. It's this this great spiral. Because Paul's articulating here what he tried to say, at least in the first few verses of Colossians, that God is doing what what God had tried to do in, in creation, but we messed up with sin. It's that make a people that can bear fruit. A people that can be fruitful and multiply. And so now this new creation is, be, is, is becoming a reality as we learn about him and live in, in line with him. We are bearing fruit. So Paul says here for believers, our greatest need is to know God's will. To know not just the plan, not, not the plan, but, but to know him. Is that our prayer? Is that your prayer? To know him more. The second thing he prays for in verse 11 is that we may have strength. That we may be strengthened with power. And again, that seems like the thing that I want to pray for. Give me strength, God. Give me powers. Give me things that that can do the miraculous. Things that I I could use for, I don't know, if it's not personal gain, maybe it's It's power over sickness, power over death. Give me power to to help. I mean, imagine what it would be if we had God's power in us. We could make a real impact on the world. We could do something about war and disease and poverty and racism. The other day I was looking through um, some of the first issues of the old Superman comics. 1939, and uh, Superman is like really different there. He can't even fly. When he started, he just like jumped really far distances. And who is he fighting? He's not fighting aliens or or these super villains. <laughs> In the first few issues, he he takes on uh, reckless drivers, <laughs> corrupt used car salesmen. Uh, he, uh, he goes after gambling and the ills of gambling and breaks up a casino. Uh, and then at one time, he even takes on corruption in college football. And here we, we are, not, you know, 80 years later, thinking, well, so much for that. <laughs> Problems are still there. It's just this, this uh, pre-war optimism. You know, if we just had more strength, if we just had more power, we would solve the world's problems. But what the wars taught us and, and what we always find out is that when you give me more power or when I give you more power, it doesn't work out so well. 
But, you know, again, that's something that, that's the sort of thing that we would need if we were still in Egypt. We would need the strength to survive, the strength to overthrow those powers that are there that, that oppress us so that we now maybe can become the top dog and have all the power. The gospel says we're not in Egypt anymore. We don't need that strength. That's not what we should be praying for. Christ has done the heavy lifting. He's defeated the powers that oppress. Even more than that, the change he is bringing about in this world does far more than change behaviors on the surface. He gets down and transforms hearts. And when that happens, the world does become a different place. So if we're in Christ, then, what kind of power do we need? Look at what Paul prays for. He not, doesn't pray for physical strength. He doesn't pray for miracles. He prays for endurance and patience. Endurance could also be translated long-suffering. Being able to bear with something. Being able to, to bear... to deal with a burden for an extended period of time. But what he's saying here is more than just grit your teeth and bear it. You know, that sort of stoicism. All right, you know, God, just give me enough energy so I can get through this. I I can't tell you how many times I have prayed that prayer. God, this week is so bad. Give me strength to just get to the end of it because I'm dying here. And we pray that all the time, but, but, you know, even that's not what Paul's praying for. Look at what he asked for. For strength and endurance and patience with joy. Why has he got to throw that in there? Joy? i got to be joyful through long-suffering? How am I supposed to be joyful in the midst of long-suffering? Joy here is not having a sunny disposition, not smiling and pretending everything is okay. Joy is a good feeling, for sure. But it's this deep satisfaction that that goes down to our soul. That's what joy is. How can we have it? How do you endure with joy? Well, it's essential that we know the Exodus story. It's essential to know that we've been rescued from something that really has been slavery to us, and that we have been delivered into something that's this inheritance in the son of, of, of the beloved son. But even more, that we know right now that God is at work. How can I endure with joy? I can only do so realizing that the God that got me out of that and the God that's delivering me into something else is even now at work in everything. He's at work even he's in every providence, even the hard providences, the things that break us down and cause us to cry, the things that just seem confusing and chaotic. It's not purposeless. We know too much. There's too much context in our story to think it's purposeless. That God is using all of that, even that, because he loves us. Because he's bringing new life now blooming inside of us. Because he's even putting to death, and that hurts, putting to death the old life that is killing us. 
Paul believes that because that's going on in Christ, as we're in Christ, then joy is always possible. Joy can't just be tied to the fun times. It's not just there in the ebbs and flows of a, of a week. It can be there every time because we know the story. We know that God's glorious might is active. These are the things that Paul prays for, for this Colossian church. To be honest, we pray for far too little. We pray for those things that get us out of Egypt or make Egypt a little bit better. We pray for those things that help us cope, maybe to get an edge. We pray for far too little. We look at these prayers and say, well, is this really going to help me? Could this really be significant? Or could it be that our deepest problem, our deepest problem is that we don't realize the real significance of what Christ has done. We don't know where we are. We don't know the story that he's put us into. Paul's saying, the most important thing, the essential thing that I could pray for you to have right now is for you to know all the riches of the gospel. Because the person who knows that, the person who starts even at a small level to understand all that Christ has done, well, they begin to have joy. They begin to have purpose in life. They begin to know this God and want to live for this God. They are the ones who will know, yes, I've been delivered from the domain of darkness into this inheritance. If this kingdom really has come, then what we need is not to know the plan, and we don't need superpower strength. What we need to do is to know this God to know his will, so that we can even more heartily pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, because we know that there will be a day when that is a reality. We can pray with boldness that he will give us endurance, even in long-suffering, because we know who this God is. That's my prayer. That's my prayer for myself. That's my prayer for you, that more and more you will know this God, that you will know Christ to the the depth of these riches, because that is the most practical, most significant thing that you need. Let's pray.